Good morning. Thank you. I'm attracted to the one in the middle. I don't know why. Maybe it's 38 years together, I don't know. For those of you visiting, I just want you to know that's my wife, Kelly. She doesn't always sing up there, so. That's how I first spotted her, singing in the choir. Choirs have changed. I wanted to let you know that I learned on Tuesday, I had a visit with my oncologist, and the oncologist told me that my cancer is in remission, so I praise the Lord for that. And I want to thank you for your prayers for me. Really, thank you very much. Um, I have to say, I've I've been a little self-conscious of the fact that uh, as my sister told me, my sister lives in Ben Lomond, the Santa Cruz Mountains, and, and we stay connected through modern technology. Uh, but she, she said, I know you have a great support group. And uh, indeed I do. Thank you very much. But let's remember, we have brothers and sisters in Christ and friends uh, who are wrestling with so many things as well, and let's remember them in prayer. And I have made many friends through this uh, process, new friends, and, uh, and now I stay in touch with them, and uh, I'm very mindful of them. And as I got an email from one this morning, uh, feeling a little bit of survivor's guilt, I guess, I'd written back to her a week ago, and she said, oh, don't, you know, don't feel that way. You give us hope. So, thank you. Uh, As you might imagine, I've received lots of uh, calls and emails over the past uh, few months from from longtime friends um, who've heard I, you know, was battling cancer. And most, um, as the case may be, I mean, I've been walking with Christ now about 40 years, so, so, so many belong to the family of God, uh, and and they call to uh, connect. Many of them I haven't talked to or, or seen in many years, and they call to express concern and love. And this last week I got a call, and uh, out of the conversation, a couple of friends came up. Uh, a friend to us both, and then a, a, a relative to me, who's also a friend, and a, and a friend to the caller. And separately, uh, each The friend are in common and the relative to me and friend. uh, Each was betrayed and embittered uh, years ago uh, at different times, different circumstances by the behavior of different Christians whom they looked up to as examples, uh, but Christians who did very un-Jesus-like things. And it's true that both my friend and my, my relative were wronged. Deeply wronged. And not the only ones wronged. But Jesus didn't wrong them. And it is hard as it is for me to appreciate their hurt, and they're still embittered. 
They have rejected Jesus because a Christian did not follow Jesus. So ironically, my friend and relative don't follow Jesus either. Just think about that a minute. Who's to blame? The one who claims Jesus, but doesn't listen to Jesus. Or hears Jesus, but doesn't take what he says to heart, or thinks it's for somebody else. All four were Christians. All of them stopped listening to Jesus. All of them. At some point. I'm not saying they never listened again. I'm just saying at critical times, they didn't listen. You don't have to be a highly educated theologian to understand words like these. Love. Forgive. Repent. I mean, you know, turn back, turn away. That's what repent means. Stop doing what you're doing. Alter your attitude. Change your mind. That's what repent means. Here's another. Sin no more. Are we sinless? Of course not. Please, I'm not perfect. I know it better than anyone. Well, not Jesus. Jesus knows it better even than me. And the same is true for you. But when Jesus said to that woman, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, there are times or moments in our life when we're confronted with the fact that we've done something terribly wrong. And we can't undo it, but we can listen to Jesus at that point, and He can say, so change your behavior. Stop what you're doing. Go to that person that you wrong. Tell them you're sorry. And that brings up something. Jesus said, go to your brother, or go to your sister. And then he said, follow me. In other words, just be real about your Christian walk. Just be honest with Jesus and with others. It's really not that hard. It's, it's pretty revolutionary, not because of what we do, but because of what he did. In the book of Acts, I've used Jesus people. I don't, did we put that opening slide up there? Can you put it up for me again, Ken? Becoming the Church, Stories of the First Jesus People. I've used the expression Jesus people rather than Christians because as a book I picked up, and in the very first chapter, in the very first words, said Christianity has an image problem. And it reminds, don't get me wrong, Christianity and Christian are noble, rich, powerful, meaningful words. 
But Christian is supposed to identify a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, we're told in the New Testament that in Acts chapter 11, and we, we've, we've already gone past Acts, we're in chapter 17, but in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, speaking of this group of Jesus people, and by the way, in, in Antioch, which is what it's describing, the Jesus people in this city outside of Judea, Samaria, up in Syria, no apostle, nobody. We don't even know exactly. It just says, you know, people from Cyprus went to them and told them about Jesus. So nobody gets the credit. It wasn't the work of one of the apostolic superheroes. And it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. A Christian identified a disciple. When I was pastoring in uh, the San Francisco area, we had a I, I talked about this very theme, and after, after this worship service, uh, Tom Hill came up to me and he, he said, uh, I just want you to know I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple. As though a disciple is like something you graduate to. You can be a Christian, but not a disciple of Jesus. I mean, think about that. You could be a Christian and not be a follower of Jesus? Yes, in our society, that's the way people bifurcate. They, they distinguish, they categorize, they separate the idea of Christian and disciple. Christian means something very different to people in our society. It does have an image problem. Billy Graham said, I was born in a Christian home. But that doesn't make me a Christian. I could be born in a garage, but that doesn't make me an automobile. There's an old saying, you may be the only Bible somebody reads today. If that's so, even if they don't know they're reading it, what are they learning about Jesus from you and me. We need to put Christ back in Christian. If we're ever going to revive or resurrect the true meaning of Christian, it's got to begin with people following Jesus. They didn't name themselves Christians. They were disciples. Others called them Christians because they saw in them Christ. Christian means little Christ, little, little Jesuses. And that is God's very purpose for our lives. Our destiny is to become like Jesus. And that is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. We should become more and more beautiful in Christ. because of him. Jesus people follow Jesus. It's not that poetic, it's not that elegant, but it's spot on. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, we're not going to get the whole answer in Acts 17, but I'd like to read verses 1 through 15. So follow with me, reading from the New International Version. 
when they, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, which is not something that the Jews really saw in Scripture or necessarily associated with the Messiah. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. Not all, obviously, but a significant number. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, that is, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king who called, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. And not very long after the events recorded here, Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians. Ever watch the game show Jeopardy? I've been watching since I lived with my parents. And Art Fleming was the host. Um, I'd never make it as a contestant myself. Uh, my mind just doesn't work that way. But I do enjoy watching Jeopardy, and I still get a chance here and there to catch one of the broadcasts. You wouldn't think a game show gives you, that gives you all the answers would be very competitive. 
The trick, however, is to come up with the right questions. For example, a contestant might, ele- might select presidents for $200. And the answer is the father of our country. He didn't really chop down a cherry tree. To which the question is, who is George Washington? See how that works? Here's one on the Bible. Here's a Bible category. These are actual answers and questions. In Genesis 2.24, that is chapter 2, verse 24, two words are what a man shall do to his parents and then to his wife. Add a letter to one to get the other. And the question, what is to leave and cleave? Playing a little Jeopardy when you read the Bible can benefit you. You get the answers. It's our job sometimes to see the questions. Let's play a little Jeopardy in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Luke gives us some answers. Here are the questions that I came up with. And the first one is, are followers expected to think for themselves? Well, if we start with verse 11, Luke says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. In other words, to say that it's more noble, or they were more noble, why? Well, he explains it. They were eager. They were receptive. That's exactly the word. They were receptive. They didn't just dismiss it out of hand. They didn't just deny the possibility without even giving it thought. They were at least open. And more importantly, they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were true. Now, it doesn't uh, take much to remember that the Bereans, just like the Thessalonians, did not have pocket testaments or coffee table versions of the Bible. There were no Gideons. In fact, if, they, if their synagogue happened to have the whole Bible, it would be, I mean, just one book would be more than a person could carry. I mean, these were large scrolls. Or if they were in books or codices, they were, you know, very, very large. Uh, The book of Acts was, uh, just the scroll of Acts was 35 feet. So you don't, I mean, how nice to hop around. Let's turn to chapter 17. You're there in a second, you know. (laughs) scrolls not everybody had their own scroll they couldn't afford it it was a costly enterprise to reproduce the word in fact to have a writing was a treasure we're overwhelmed with information we're I mean we're drowning in stuff I wish I could fact check. I don't even trust the fact checkers. There's so much going on. And everybody has their little slant. I'd like to read it for myself. 
If I'm a scholar, it's come from that. Just getting the original writing or the first, first writing that people are talking about and not listening to what everyone else is saying about that. So if you come into my office and you look at the books, a lot of them are what we call primary sources. That way when somebody else tells me how to read somebody, I can pull that document and read it for myself. And they didn't have pocket testaments, so don't picture a little Bible study off in somebody's coffee niche in the morning. What it means is they kept going back to the synagogue daily. They were hungry to see and discern for themselves whether these things were true. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Because Billy Graham said, I was born in a Christian home, but that doesn't make me a Christian. Each person has to come to that conviction and decision for himself or herself. And it's not something you just do once. I mean, in the sense, I mean, you, you, that decision is lived out on an ongoing basis. You don't just say, yeah, I made that decision and now it's, it's all over. You know, I mean, I, I'll move on to something else. It's something you grow in. You grow in a relationship. Could you imagine having a friendship where you met over coffee and that's the last time you ever met? Would someone call that a friendship? Certainly not a relationship. You spend time together. And there are lots of ways we do that, but one of them is to hear what Jesus has to say. To be in the Word. To hear what other friends followers, disciples of Jesus say? Yes, the answer is, think for yourself. I just want to draw your attention to verse 2 and 3 very quickly. Look at Paul's presentation in Thessalonica. In verse 2, it says, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The word reason, we get our word dialogue from the word reason, that is, or the Greek word that is translated reason. In other words, he didn't just dictate. There was give and take, there was exchange, there was, you know, questions and answers. Another word that is used here also kind of enriches our understanding of what Paul was uh, saying. Verse 3, explaining, literally opening, as in exposing to them, taking them to different places in the Scripture and revealing what the Scripture says. And then the the next word in verse uh, 3, the NIV says proving. The word simply means placing beside. And it does, it can be prove or demonstrate. But I think we get a picture by the use of this word, which means to place beside. Paul taking, looking at this scripture and then placing it beside another scripture and then another scripture. And thus, as it were, ideas and scriptures placed side by side are proving and demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Messiah had to suffer and be raised from the dead. And Jesus is that Messiah. He's the guy. Look at the Scriptures. That's what he was doing. But he wasn't just dictating, is my point. He's not bullying them. Thinking for yourself makes sense, as I said. 
Are followers expected to think for themselves? Followers? Yes, following begins with a personal conviction, and it grows. It grows over time as we continue to follow Him. Here's another uh, answer uh, that we, or question that we get from the answer in uh, Acts chapter 17. And this is, uh, we see in verses 4 and 12, our followers losers. Uh, I wanted to kind of change that, but somebody on the staff said, no, just keep it losers. Um, I, did, I did Google that. Are Christians losers? And I got a web page. <laughs> and the guy, the guy who has the web page, uh, one of the first things there was um, uh, a document where he, you know, he, he brings up the fact that he had changed, I guess, the address and his email address, the web and email address, to Christ, Christians or losers. And then friends, as he points out, started saying, you know, well, what, what's going on? In fact, one friend said, are you talking about what Christianity has become with all its rules and hypocrisy? That is for losers, a friend wrote. But he replied, no, that's backwards. Fake. Religious Christianity is for winners. People that are good enough and have it all together. People who think that they do not need grace. True Christianity is for failures. People who screw up and know it. People who embrace grace at the risk of abusing it. People who are as shifty and unstable as the sand and thus need a rock on which to build. Well, I don't know if creating confusion <laughs> is the way to get at something, but obviously this guy is really about wanting to follow Christ. And he wants it to be known that those who follow Christ have to recognize they're losers to begin with. Because why would they follow Jesus otherwise? That's kind of a premise or a starting point. I need Jesus. So are followers losers? Well, I don't want to define or debate the, but yeah. But what Luke shows us here, which is quite interesting, is a lot of losers are upper crust. They're people of higher social standing and rank. They're the people that in our world influence us. They're the kind of people that sometimes we look at and we say, wow, why, why am I not like that person? Or if only I had their wealth or, or their things. We've all done that, haven't we? Maybe it's just me. We look up to the successful the people that are idolized, the people, and in this time and period, now, you know, anybody can kind of be a blue blood. But in that day and age, there were distinct classes. And if you think there was apartheid or discrimination that we've, in our advanced and modern 
progress have dismissed. Back in those days, it was rife. It was very common. And it was accepted. But here, Luke says, devout Greeks and many prominent... In fact, he uses the expression multitudinous multitude. I think uh, some just say a large crowd. He wants to say a lot of Greeks who are very devout, or as Brian reminded us of Lydia, were people seeking and wanting to worship God. Oh, a lot of people today talk about being spiritual. It would be those kinds of people, you know, who say, I'm spiritual, which is kind of like saying, hey, I'm into the real authentic, real stuff, the natural stuff. I'm the real deal. Well, a lot of the people who thought they were the real deal came to Jesus Christ. They're losers too. And the upper crust, a lot of prominent women also. Scholar Robert H. Gundry wrote, and I quote, in effect, Luke is telling the reader, follow the crowd. You'll be far from alone, and you'll be in lofty company, both religiously and socially, for the good news attracts the best as well as the many. And I would add, the last, the least, the losers are everywhere. We must never forget we are all losers. Jesus makes us leaders when we follow Jesus because in every station of life you can find someone who can lead you to Jesus. Luke has shown in Acts the diversity of the many who have turned to follow Jesus, the lower and the lowest, to the higher and the highest, a lame beggar to a Barnabas, a ruthless religious zealot, to a Roman centurion, Roman governor, Ethiopian diplomat, independent businesswoman, even a Roman jailer, and their houses and households included. Are followers of Jesus losers? No. They're winners. Another answer that brings up a question, are followers expected to oppose Caesar? We see this in verse 7. These men who've caused trouble, starting in verse 6, all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. You know, when I was, uh, I mean, for many years, I was kind of mindful of the King James Version. It says, turn the world upside down. And that expression could be taken as unintentional praise. But the accusers were in fact charging the Christians with subversion and sedition. This is very important. That's in verse 7. If you understand, at that time, which was A.D. 50, the Romans were having trouble with Jews all over the empire. In Judea, the Jewish terrorists or freedom fighters, were assassinating other Jews who collaborated with Rome, or they thought collaborated with Rome. 
There were numerous messianic groups in other provinces as well. And the uproar in the Jewish community had already led the emperor at that time, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, to expel all the Jews from the imperial city of Rome. In fact, in the very next chapter, verse, in chapter 18, verse 2, it refers to Aquila and Priscilla who had to leave Rome because they were Jewish. In, in nine years before, in 41 AD, we have the letter of Claudius that he wrote to the leaders of the municipal area of Alexandria, one of the largest cities in Egypt, dealing with a bloody riot between Greeks and Jews. So this is a real issue. And now, when Paul goes into the synagogue and starts talking about Jesus being the Messiah, which they understood king, and that's why they say he is Lord, not Caesar. And Jesus is predicting, as we know from his letter to the Thessalonians, he says, I told you that we're awaiting our Savior from heaven. They believe, as we do today, that Jesus is going to return and he's going to establish with irresistible power his reign, his lordship. This is seditious. And they're dragged before the city officials. Beware of becoming known as a disciple of a political party. I mean that in all seriousness. It's a political season. I'm even aware I'm a Giants fan. By the way, it's a great time to be a Giants fan. It may not be by the end of the season. But I'm aware of that. I don't want to make too much of that. I have friends on Facebook that are always posting giant stuff, and it's making me nervous because I don't want that balance because I am trying to witness to a lot of people through Facebook. It's not my sole purpose, but I'm mindful of it. I'm mindful that there are people who don't know Jesus Christ out there that are looking at Jesus Christ through me and what I post. And I'll tell you, a lot of them have come out of the woodwork that I had no idea were aware of my Facebook page. I got notes from people that I only knew as a name because originally I started playing a, video, a Facebook game which I quit because that got to be too important. The point is, as I want people to know me as a follower of Jesus Christ for, foremost, a real follower of Jesus, yes, he follows baseball. Yes, he has political opinions. But I am concerned that some of us, we're so wrapped up in this already, and we're, what, 65 days from the election? I think some of us are just going to short out and explode. Maybe I should quit right there. <laughs> Billy Graham, great evangelist for Christ of our era, regretted his close ties with Richard Nixon. 
he had become too involved in politics. He became identified, so identified, that it disqualified in some ways, or qualified in some negative ways, his position about following Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord. He, doesn't, he isn't this or that. And I think it's because of that that he said, and he, he quoted this again in an interview, just a year ago, I would have steered clear of politics. You vote. That's our responsibility. We are to be good citizens. You can find it everywhere in the Scripture. And I encourage you to read Romans 13. I encourage you to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. I encourage you to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12-17 through 17, and reflect on these passages of Scripture that speak intentionally and directly to our role as followers of Jesus Christ under a political umbrella. And in that era, they didn't even have the right to vote. And the last thing, our followers evangelicals. Well, although Peter and Paul are central followers in the story of the spread of the gospel, there are many names and many named, and I already mentioned uh, those who that outbreak of Jesus' people in Antioch, there are many that are named and unnamed that point others to Jesus Christ. To be evangelistic, to tell others about Jesus Christ, to have an influence for Jesus Christ, you do not have to be an apostle or an evangelist or have the gift of evangelism. My pastor used to say, sheep reproduce sheep, not the shepherd. We should all be evangelistic. We don't merely support missionaries. We are missionaries. We have a long-range mission, not just tasks, to become more and more like Jesus. His very purpose for us is to become like Jesus. And if that is true, and it is, then ipso facto, that is, by that very fact, we are to show more and more of Jesus in our conduct, character, and our commentary on life and what it means to be a follower of Jesus or little Christs or Jesus' people. The word evangelical comes from our word gospel. Did you know that? The word gospel, it even sounds similar. Evangelion. Evangelical. Unfortunately, evangelical has come to speak of politics and not the person of Jesus in our social glossary today. The gospel is centered on Jesus and the explosive and expansive meaning of his death and resurrection. And that's what we celebrate. And that's what we remember today. Where does following Jesus begin? It begins at the cross. We do this every month, the first Sunday of the month. 
I want to thank the men for getting up. They're going to serve us the Lord's Supper. This bread, a bitter flat bread going all the way back to the Exodus. This represents the body of Jesus Christ. His life. I really appreciated what Brian put focus on this morning. Our suffering King. He doesn't lord it over. That is revolutionary. It cuts so against the grain of the world. And that's what it takes to follow Jesus. Surrender. You've got to believe that He wins. That He is good. That He is just our God who sent His Son Jesus to want to live like that. To follow Jesus. I call you to this this morning as you take this bread. Let this be what it is intended to be. A confession, an expression of your conviction. Not our perfection. We're losers. But our conviction, even just for this moment, don't be distracted by yesterday's failures. It's now. Is this what's on your heart? Do you want to follow Him? Do you believe that He loves you, accepts you, wants to help you, cares for you, has a future for you? Then just forget all the rest and respond to Jesus. And take this bread with all your heart. And in it ingest the truths of Jesus Christ for your life. That's the starting point. Think for yourselves. And then this cup. This is what he offers. This new covenant. New life. A future, not a past. New beginnings. A new relationship. That brings joy. That brings a hallelujah. A praise to the Lord. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take the bread and the cup. Gracious Heavenly Father, from the depths of our heart, we say thank you. And may that ring in our hearts as we hold the bread and then the cup, as we take the bread and then the cup. May your Spirit work in our hearts this morning to speak your special truths to the needs, the hurts, the things that are unreal, the things that need to be changed in our own heart that have come between us and you. And help us to see, Lord, it's all set aside. There's nothing between us and you but just things that are unreal and untrue because you are the same always. 
We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.